Good morning. Good morning. Um, we can. We're talking about a serious subject, but um, you know, we we like to have fun too. So probably gonna laugh and talk about some serious stuff. And, but anyway, I'm gonna get um, Whitney to start on the end um, with what did you say? Your name, what you do, how long you've been doing it. Uh, I knew I was gonna start first. <laughs> said in the middle. Um, I'm Whitney Trotter. I'm originally from Austin, Texas, but I've been in Memphis for about ten years. Um, I'm a registered dietitian, nurse, and yoga teacher. Um, I do a lot of work in human trafficking. I used to serve for seven years at the Shelby County Rape Crisis Center, where I was a part of their SART, SART team, which is the Sexual Assault Response Team. Um, and I also am one of the co-founders of an anti-trafficking nonprofit in Memphis called Restore Corps. And I have a private practice where I do nutritional counseling for people with eating disorders. So a lot of the intersection of eating disorder, food justice, and trauma. All right, next, Danita. Um, my name is Danita Calhoun. Uh, I am a na native Memphian. I uh, grew up in South Memphis. Um, I work for Young Life. Uh, I serve as the area director for Memphis Young Lives, which is outreach and focused on teenage mothers in our city. Uh, I've been on staff with Young Lives, uh, Young Life for 14 years, and uh, I've been in vocational ministry for more than 20 years. I'm the mother of three adult children and three grandchildren. And the best wife to Cedric Calhoun. Amen. <laughs> All right, Teresa, thank you. Hi, I'm Teresa Hall Franklin, and I also grew up in South Memphis as well. Uh, attended Lamorne Owen College, University of Memphis. I've been in the uh, mental health field since 2002. Uh, feel pretty dated by saying that, but uh, yeah, 18 years in counseling, board certified counselor, licensed professional counselor. Um, EDS and mental health counseling, private practice uh, inside of Clark Tower, where I focus on PTSD, marital counseling, anger management, stress management, uh, and mood disorders. All right. Thank you, Teresa. Natila. So hi, I'm Natila. Um, I have grown up in Carville, so a native to the 901 area. Um, I went to UT Martin, and I got my clinical mental health counseling degree from Freed Hardeman University. I have experience working at youth villages with at-risk youth. I've also interned at the Summit at HealthQuest doing IOP or um, intensive outpatient therapy with adults and adolescents. Um, currently, I am a mental health counselor working at HeartLife Professional Soul Care. It's a private practice in Germantown, and I specialize in mood disorders, trauma, anxiety with children and adolescents as well. Awesome. So you can see we have a distinguished panel here, right? <laughs> um, so I'm going to jump right in and start um, with our first question. And I'm going to ask Natila to kind of give us a working definition of trauma. So if you would go ahead. And then um, also, if anybody else has anything to add to that. Yeah, so my working definition of trauma would be a psychological wound that is caused by a distressing event that exceeds a person's ability to cope. So simply put, as we kind of move forward in our understanding of trauma, it's broadened, right? Um, and so what we're finding is it can literally be anything that we experience or even um witness that exceeds our ability to cope and move forward. Um, please, if anyone has anything else to add. No? I thought that was great. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So we're going to move right along. Um, so in the media and um, social media and on the news, um, people of color are seeing all types of things happen to people that look like them. And so the question is, um, how can the image, the constant images of death towards people of color affect men and women of color, given your perspective field? So you've named off your fields. Um, how have you seen how, what type of trauma um, can it put on people? Maybe not affected directly, but how, what types of things have y'all seen in your perspective field? I can, Danita, you can, you can start out. Um, I've seen where uh, what what the terminology of vicarious um, 
trauma is happening with the population of, of teens that I get the privilege to serve um, because of all the things that's going on around them and in their world uh, and the fact of being a teenage mom and navigating that. Um, I've, what I've noticed most is there's kind of like this numbness to it because they become so accustomed to um, the, the different types of traumas that's not only happening within their home, but in their community. And so um, it's both like complex and uh, that carries just all those things that are happening and that's causing them to become numb to what's going on around them. Yeah. All right, Whitney, have you seen yeah, absolutely. I would just to echo um, what Tanita said. And I think we we hold trauma in different places in our body. And so with the population that I serve, um, you know, it manifests a lot in the GI system. Mm-hmm. And some of that plays out in eating disorders where you're binging and, and secondary coping skills of like numbing your body. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree. It's, it's that complex trauma that you see over and over and over again, that some people are getting desensitized to, but then there's like, a heightened awareness in your body and, you know, you have anxiety in your chest and, um, you know, difficulty breathing. And every time you get into your car, there's an innate fear of, of what could happen. Yeah. So. Teresa, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. And in mood disorders, um, speaking to what everyone else has, has said, um, just anxiety, the fears, the depression, the numbness, um, the panic, of the unknown. The fear of the unknown is is most common. Yeah. So I I know for sure um, that I've seen it as well um, in in the kids that I minister to as well. Uh, Danita and Natila, I'm going to get (laughs) y'all. So um, what are some identifiable signs that help parents recognize trauma in their own children? And if anyone else has something to add to, but Danita and Natila, since I know for sure y'all definitely have your field to working with children as well. I will say like, um, behavioral changes. Um, you may have, uh, you may have no, they may notice that a child, uh, like you said, mood changes, their behavior change. They may even turn towards more risky behavior and then some turn to be more, you know, turn towards being more reclusive. And so just paying attention to the behavior change the mind, you know, grades may drop or you may find out like they're getting involved in things that they are normally not involved in. Uh, they're starting to choose um, friendships that are unhealthy, relationships that are unhealthy. And so those are some of the things that I've noticed. Uh, and even in my own life, to be honest, you know, uh, those are some of the signs that I was, you know, dealing with some traumas that had happened in my own life and just my behavior began to change. And then to add to that, I would say, especially for elementary school age kids, you're going to see a lot of acting out behaviors. And so what we would normally look at and say, oh, this child is exhibiting disobedient behavior. It's kind of being able to take a step back and say, what's going on here? What has my child potentially experienced that could cause this behavior? Because oftentimes kids are looking for methods of gaining control because they feel powerless and helpless to change whatever has happened or what could be currently happening. And it presents as disruptive in the classroom or maybe more aggressive aggression at home and difficulty, you know, minding directives. So just kind of being able to state, you know, is there more to it than just my child being disobedient? Whitney, do you have anything to add? Uh, I thought that was great. I would say um, <clears throat> I would look for, you know, sleep, um, any sleep patterns, behavior pr- patterns, relationship patterns. I would say in the adolescence that I work with, definitely um, positive reinforcement. I think parents, you know, being um, just active in every aspect of their child's life. Um, and one of the things that we do with the adolescents that I work with is we try to incorporate family-based therapy. And so one of the goals is we actually ask the parents or the, the guardians to have three meals in the evening with no distractions. Um, and to make sure that kids aren't like hoarding food. Um, if there is, you know, and we can talk about trauma and food insecurity later, but, um, just those basic behavior needs, if there is a shift in that could be, um, a really good indicator that something is going on. 
Oh, I actually would like you to, to go a little bit further with the trauma and the food insecurities. Oh. So one of the things um, that we're talking a lot about, there's a big misconception is that um, black folks don't struggle with eating disorders or body image. And we know that that's inherently not true. Um, unfortunately, the eating disorder world has been primarily the stereotype of affluent white women. And it was thought as a kind of a preconceived notion of food insecurity. You can't also have an eating disorder, mm -hmm. but we know with the lack of food accessibility and food insecurity, it does manifest as trauma. So what we're seeing is children and adolescents, if they're food insecure, when they're adults, they don't have a healthy relationship with their food or body, and it's a trauma response. Is anybody else seeing that kind of if they're working with their patients if or or anybody you're ministering to, anybody else seeing that? And can you think of an example of maybe an acting out? Well, I will say this. I know for sure um, I, some is there was a student that I was ministering to, um, and she grew up with food insecurities. Um, and I know for sure, you know, we think, um, what is it? They may have an attitude when you don't give them the candy that they ask for when there's, it's not just the candy, it's that you're denying them food. And so if they don't have food at home and they I just want something to eat, um, because I'm not getting it at home. The attitude is not just the attitude. The attitude is I'm hungry and you're not seeing that. And I don't want to tell you I don't have food at home. So that's what I've experienced. And I, I don't know. I mean, I know for sure you probably have had something come across you like that. But I know when you said food insecurities um, and the trauma that that brings about, that's the one thing that popped in my mind. Um, and I didn't find that out until I started taking the young lady home. Um, but anyway, um, we're going to move on. So, Teresa, yeah. <laughs> will you share some healthy techniques to manage anger and stress in our, in our current climate? So our current climate, everything with everything that's gone on, COVID, all the stuff that you've seen on the media, obviously that brings about stress and a lot of anger within our community. Right. Well, I think first you have to recognize what your uh, your warning signs are, your, your triggers are so that you're not. Um, exposing yourself uh, to them just uh, uh, when you don't need to. And so in knowing what those triggers are, then you can create healthy ways to cope and to deal with it. Uh, and obviously it could be counseling, seeing a licensed you know, professional, trained professional, or it could be meditation at home. It could be reading. It could be uh, spending time with your children. Um, it could be praying, obviously. Uh, it could be journaling. Um, uh, just so many different techniques of self-care even, you know, I've gotten into uh, making my own hair care products on the weekend. And so that's what I look forward to doing. You know, that's my me time. That's what I get a chance to do. So anything that brings you comfort and pleasure uh, that helps you to distract your mind. Um, we know that many times when we spend too much time thinking about something, uh, it's almost the addiction of thinking. And, and here comes another thought and 50 more thoughts. And then now you're in this spiral depression and anxiety attacks and panic attacks. And it just goes on and on. Uh, so being able to give yourself a break from that uh, and just do something that you love and that you, you care about. Yeah, I, I know in our household, we call those rabbit holes where we start yeah. spiraling down. Mm -hmm. um, anybody else have anything to add to those? I would add um, just healthy boundaries because there's a lot going on right now. And so it's very easy to find yourself giving so much emotionally in support of other people. I know work demands have been increasing on everyone in like multiple fields. So being able to say, you know, I'll only do work between this time and this time to ensure that you are making space to take care of yourself and practicing self-care, because oftentimes we're so focused on scheduling what we need to do and kind of forget that it's important to schedule time for ourselves as well. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yes. So um, this can be a kind of a little touchy subject. So I want anybody that will jump in. How does someone recognize, honestly confront, recognize and honestly confront their own traumatic experience? So we as a community don't necessarily, we like to push stuff to the side. How do we do that? How do we get to that point where we need to address it and honestly take care of it? 
Um, I, I think that, you know, as a culture, we have just normalized so much, uh, you know, just growing up in South Memphis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we have, I'm sure, similar stories, <laughs> shared stories. Uh, and across, you know, all the zip codes in Memphis and in other uh, cities as well. But, you know, sometimes we just we see it so much we become desensitized. And we just say, you know, that's just kind of a part of growing up. That's just, you know, part of North Memphis, South Memphis, whatever. Um, but it is trauma, you know, and I've had students I also teach psychology. Uh, but I've had students to talk about, you know, seeing their first dead body at seven. And, you know, and, and it was almost nothing because once they saw the second one, then it's like, OK, well, this is almost normal. This is, you know, was part of my community, but it's, it's not normal. And uh, as we all know, in PTSD and post-traumatic stress disorder, it doesn't uh, typically manifest until years later. And so, yeah, you saw your first dead body at seven, but you might not see the the manifestation of it or the effects of it until you're 25 or 35 or when you have your first child uh, or when your first child starts, you know, school or something like that. Um, I would also say um, I grew up in a in a time where we were taught to not talk outside of our homes. And so growing up in that time where you, you know, it, it, all, all the bad stayed within the family um, because it wasn't the thing to talk outside your home. You don't talk outside your home. You don't tell our family business. And so you learn to suppress those things. And when, and, and, and in suppressing those things, when other things began to come out in the community, in the school, you know, in your school, your friends or whatever, you don't know how to deal with those things. And so uh, it's been probably more recently that I myself realized oh, I need to go to counseling. And that was something that was also talked about in the era that I grew up in because you just, it wasn't a thing for black people to go to counseling, you know? And so um, being able to do that and go to counseling and realize like a lot of my own traumatic, uh, my own trauma was centered around abandonment and this sense of abandonment. And so whether people died because of natural causes or walked out of my life or didn't have the presence of my dad. It didn't matter which way they left. I had this issue with abandonment. And so now I'm working with a population of teenage mothers who have this same sense of abandonment and I live it all over every day. And so I have to make sure that I'm keeping myself healthy by making sure I'm staying actively engaged, being ha- being able to have a space where I can drop that off in order to be able to help somebody else. Let's talk about the uh, the stigma around um, black people not going to counseling. So all of y'all are professionals in this realm and clearly y'all are all women of color. So how did y'all get to a place where you're like, oh wait, counseling is the thing like we are supposed to do this to take care of ourselves like how did you get to and you don't have to get super personal but how did you get to a place where i mean Danita, you just shared how do you get to a place where it's okay like we grew up and said oh we're going to keep this in we don't talk about this like there was something that said i actually need to be an advocate for my community to say you need this just like you need to go to the doctor when you have a cold you know right how do you get to that place? Well, definitely mental health and physical health are the same. You know, as I tell clients, you would not sit in your chair and have a heart attack and not call 911. But you sit in your beds and you stay in your beds all day long, battling with depression and anxiety, and you never reach out. You know, and so it's making that connection that physical health and mental health are very much aligned, you know, and in touch with each other. But I think also, too, going a step further is is due to resources and a lack of resources. And so with me uh, accepting insurance now, I see an influx of clients where I'm, you know, of of color uh, that are are using their benefits or using their resources to seek counseling. So I do see that turning a little bit if there are resources uh, for them to use uh, and with transportation in their community. So it's so important to have, you know, small mental health uh, centers in the communities that need them. So if a person does have transportation issues, they're able to still, you know, seek those services uh, without being, um, uh, you know, uh, just not able to receive those services. Yeah. I think too, just echoing that, I think 
people of color have had so much trauma and sometimes when you live in such high traumatic situations, you don't even recognize that it's trauma. You just, you get desensitized, you become accustomed to it. I think also, so my dad grew up outside of College Station, a very, very small black town. And um, there was no, I mean, there were so many things that happened. No one talked about it. No one processed. And I was talking to my cousin and he, uh, we, we both have therapists. Um, I don't know how you work in our field and you don't, I would always question if you're seeing somebody and they're not seeing somebody. Um, and I just, we were talking, I was like, I can't believe that no one else in our family is in therapy. I mean, it was just like, you know, we were just talking. It was like none of our parents, grandparents, it wasn't, it wasn't accessible to them, but everything was, you go to the pastor, you pray about it and you desensitize it. And I truly do think that's how eating disorders start in the black community, you know, and, um, you just, you numb, it's just this, this, this cycle of just numbing, numbing, numbing and stuffing it down. And I do think as we continue to have an increase in black professionals representation, Mm -hmm. and I think that's the biggest thing is we're going to have more resources, like Teresa said, in the community, because we need it. You know, we need it when you're going through racial trauma. I have a lot of clients that have suffered racial trauma. They want a clinician of color, Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I think that's really important is increasing access, but increasing representation with that access. But I know also, um, and um, Whitney, you've done several podcasts or um, IG Lives where you've talked about also uh, people of color um, not wanting to go to even the doctor because of the history. Can you briefly yes. talk about that? Yeah. So I, man, uh, I have my own background with medical trauma, and um, but I I really started understanding. I worked in the HIV clinic, so when I originally became a dietitian, that's all I wanted to do is work in HIV and AIDS. So I did, and when I was, I worked at kind of a center of excellence, but I had clients who their family members were a part of the Tuskegee experiment. So when they would come to the HIV clinic, all the nurse nurse practitioners were black. Every doctor was white. So there was a racial stigma there and they did not want to see the doctors, understandably so. Um, And so I really did a lot of research and learning about that. But that's an an, innate fear that I think does not, we don't often in the medical community, especially being a nurse, there's a lot of stigmas. I mean, we're seeing more and more research come out about this perception that black people, particularly black women, have a higher higher pain tolerance. And I saw it in the ER. There's a a physician that would call it wimpy white boy syndrome. (laughs) And so they would literally give young white boys pain medication fast because they did not think that they could tolerate pain medication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're seeing this come out more and more and just like Serena Williams of her birth trauma and, and birth history and everything that she went through. Um, so it's very real. It's um, it's very evident. We There's so much that needs to be unlearned in our uh, medical community, especially how we treat black and brown people. Um, but it is, it's a, it's a real fear and it's something that we do need to address and, and bring forth and give our, and give our patients, um, room to, to express that, um, and validate that. Absolutely. Anybody else have anything to add to that? Okay. Um, so next, so we kind of briefly talked about, um, managing anger and stress. So are there some daily things? I know you talked about self-care, um, kind of like on a, maybe a weekly thing or just maybe on a whim. Um, but are there some daily things to help manage trauma and stress? Because people are really, it, it, it sometimes it's an everyday thing. So what are some things that we need to do to help manage those moments where it's like, wait, something just triggered me and I need to, I need to take a moment. What are some of those things? And anybody can jump in. Um, personally, I've started, I just started practicing yoga, which has been good. Uh, I started stretching first thing in the morning before I like do anything else. I just stretch my body. Uh, I noticed that a lot of my stress and trauma is, um, carried in my shoulders and in my neck and I start having like when I can feel a migraine coming on I know like I'm stressing whether I'm saying it I'm thinking it and it's like you like you said it's just 
thoughts just playing over and it go and it goes downhill. So just even beginning to practice just stretching my body out and breathing. Uh, taking time to just take deep breaths and breathe. Um, but yoga has been, you know, just sitting in the floor and just listening to uh, relaxation music and taking on those practices of even at nighttime. Uh, once, you know, say go to sleep, sometimes I just put on like calming music to help me to sleep through the night. So. I would echo that being a yoga teacher. I love that's that's one of the reasons I got into yoga. Um, I, I prayer, meditation, any type of mindful movement, um, and definitely yoga. I think yoga is, is and when you look at the origins of yoga, it was actually when it was developed, it was to help with mental health. Um, so there's definitely a, a correlation between the the mental and physical embodiment of yoga. Yeah, and so and they're both right. So I just like to add the acceptance piece though. Um, ACT acceptance and commitment therapy mm -hmm. is about accepting um, your trauma, accepting your emotions. And so sometimes when we reject that, we're causing more, we deny ourselves to even think back to those moments. Uh, you know, we're allowing that trauma and the depression and the anxiety associated with it uh, to come more frequently because it's really there to get our attention and it's there for us to recognize it, to accept it. And acceptance doesn't mean you approve of it. Acceptance just simply means that you acknowledge that it happened uh, and you don't have to continue to force your mind to suppress something that naturally wants to come up for you to address it. Talk a little bit more about suppression because we've seen, we've seen kind of maybe even in the media or even like TV, they make up stuff, but some of it's true, right? Um, when people suppress things and they, have these outbursts, could it have been that they held it in for such a long time? Yeah, or is it like just this could happen all the time? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, as you sweep things under the rug and you stuff and suppress, uh, eventually it rises to the top. And as it rises to the top, you never know when you're going to explode, when it's going to come out. Uh, you, it's unpredictable, you know. Uh, but what you can manage is the amount of things you suppress. Yeah. Uh, and knowing that uh, no one has it all together. And so there are going to be times where things do bother you, rightfully so, and they should bother you. And it's okay if they bother you. So you can accept that part uh, and not have to suppress it and put on a happy face or mask, uh, literally, you know, to, uh, re uh, to hide and conceal uh, what's really troubling you. That, you know, we all uh, are experiencing uh, some sort of distress uh, in our lives. And it can be frequent. It could be daily, weekly, situational. Uh, you know, we've all experienced grief and loss to some degree, whether it was our family members or friends or classmates. And so knowing that uh, we will have troubles in this lifetime, and as the Bible tells us, we can overcome those as well. Yeah. So um, I know we, we talked a little bit before about um, seeing all these images in social media and all those things. And I know they they um, promote um, all these emotions that come out. And what I've seen is there are a lot of people that have all this anger. Um, and Teresa, I want you to speak a little, while, a little bit more anger. And then somebody may not, um, somebody may not have originally had a problem with anger, but now they've developed something because they feel like um, people that look like them have been attacked and attacked and attacked. And now they're just this walking, ticking time bomb. Can you kind of speak to what, um, how can one um, even try to figure out, like, what do I need to do to, to not internalize everything that I see? You know, because they're, they're, you know, they may not have experienced it directly, but I don't, I don't need to internalize everything I see. I'll be sad all the time or I'll be angry all the time. I'll be walking around and yelling at people that, don't even know me, you know? Right, right. Well, so, I mean, I definitely believe there's a kinship in our culture. And so we are interrelated. Uh, and so when we see uh, faces and people who look like us uh, uh, being treated as such, then we, we take offense to that, you know, because it's a direct reflection of ourselves. And so uh, also then you look at the justice piece, the lack of justice and the lack 
of uh, advocacy uh, for us. And so you feel almost like you're charged with that call, you know, to take it on as well. And so that can be a difficult thing to separate. Uh, it's also part of just who we are as human beings and empathizing with our fellow man uh, and wanting to uh, stand up for him or her. Uh, and to take on that fight with them. And so I think, you know, obviously it's healthy to feel interconnected and interrelated to people and to emphasize. Um, but at some point you will have to, uh, per se, set a time on that, set some boundaries and some parameters around that uh, so that uh, you're not literally inducing a panic attack on yourself. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a time to act, there's a time to pray, there's a time to, you know, uh, console and reach out to people. Uh, but then there's also a time for us to take care and, and practice some self-care of ourselves. Anybody have any issues? Uh, you asked that, I automatically thought about like how long we as a culture, as a people have learned how to code switch. And so, um, and when we began the code switch, we don't, we're not our authentic selves. And I think what we're seeing now in the culture is, is that we are becoming a people who are like, no, this is me. This is who I am. And that's where you're seeing like, People are, as they say, they're becoming more woke <laughs> about who they are as a culture, as a people, and they're tired of code switching. Yeah. And so they don't know how to use that anger in, in the right way, yeah. as Erica was saying. And they're using it in a way that can sometimes come across uh, violent or destructive or whatever. But being able to embrace who we really are and not, you know, feeling like I need to, in order to me, for me to assimilate into this culture, culture, I need to code switch so I can, you know, stay on the right path or whatever. But I think that's what I'm noticing that's happening. And people are like, nope, this is me. And I'm embracing who I am now. But finding the healthy way to do that, that not only a, a way that brings God glory in a people um, in our, you know, who we are as a, as individuals and who we are as a, a culture of people. Yeah, I think about um how I had to learn how to do that. My mom, <laughs> my mom sent me uh, to Memphis. I'm, I'm originally from Nashville. My mom sent me to Memphis to learn how to, um, because Memphis has always, the population has always been, you know, a, a large population of, of black people, people of color. And then I grew up in Nashville where it's more metropolitan. So she sent me here so that I can know who I was, right? Mm -hmm. But in Nashville, I went to a private school and grew up and so I had, I learned how to code switch. She didn't tell me I had to do it, but I learned how to code switch. And I, I noticed that um, at some point, yeah, you're not authentically you because you find yourself either, you know, raising your voice a little bit so that people can think you're not, um, you know, you're not offending anyone or you notice like when you are around a different culture that you do change your facial expressions or even uh, everything's okay, you push it down. Um, and I mean, I've noticed that I, I still do it, <laughs> you know, and it, it's really hard to unlearn, um, especially if you learn it as 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 a young person. Um, so I feel like this is one of those times where you actually have to say, baby, you know, to the children, it's OK to be who you are, you know, um, and I feel like maybe at some point that is a, a slow burn of a traumatic experience, you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm not clinical at all but it's a kind of a slow burn because it's telling you you're not good enough yeah. the way you are to talk to yeah. Yeah. whoever else you want to talk to outside of your community yeah. or even if you are, there are people of color that are affluent mm -hmm. you know you're not good enough how you are to talk to yeah. other people and um yeah thanks for bringing it up that's great and i didn't mean to talk a lot um Matila, do you have anything to add I would just say that I feel that it's safe to say that it's a collective trauma, mm -hmm. right? Like something that we've all experienced for generations to generations. And I'm seeing it in like, you know, my own grandparents where it's taking them back to a time where like they're feeling as if all of this is coming to a head. And then for the younger kids, that adolescence and children that I see, it's, it's shaping how they perceive the world, how they perceive themselves and how they relate to other people. And there's already beginning to grow this seed of, I can't trust the other. Mm -hmm. And so it's continuing this unhealthy generational cycle. And so it's, it's really just something where there needs to be a lot of processing and being able to share and feeling open and safe to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of 
what I'm seeing now. Yeah. I think um, we do have to, and even us, we have to be able to be a, a safe space for some people. I'm not, I know you all have your own practices and then we all practice, but at some point we have to look at people and say, it's okay for you to share. Um, and then say, okay, I'm not a professional. I need you to go. <laughs> you know, I need you to go talk to somebody who actually has the tools, you know, that I don't have. Um, so I'm, I'm rounding third and heading home here. I know, I know. <laughs> um, so the, I did have a question from someone and this is pretty weighty to me. Can a person heal from trauma without therapy? I know it's a yes or no question, but please, please, please elaborate. Cause I know that's kind of one of those like, especially in the body of Christ, you know? Um, oh, it's such a good question. <laughs> I, I think what is interesting about that question is if, if a client was coming to me and asking me that, I would say, what's the root of that? Mm-hmm. And I, I'll say we're, what um, one of the therapists that I work with, she's also a believer, but what we're seeing in kind of like purity culture um, it's manifesting in uh, a very religious mindset. Mm-hmm. And so there really is, and I know it sounds so cliche of Jesus and therapy, but it really is true because we're seeing some of the perfectionism, the anxiety, mm-hmm. the OCD of I have to do everything right. I have to do everything right. Mm-hmm. This is sin. This is not sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we're seeing a lot of that in our clients. And I think that's very destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would tell that person, I, I don't think that you can heal from complex trauma without therapy because I think pastors are great. I'm married to a person in the ministry. Um, a prayer is fundamental, but God gives us all gifts, right? And like each one of us, he is ordained with capability and skills and insight and wisdom. So why wouldn't you use that? You know, um, and, and I think too, it just, it goes back to, I think in the black community, we just haven't had that. I mean, when you look at, um, the IG live that you and I were talking about recently with Dr. Laura Taylor, one of the books that we've been talking a lot about is post-traumatic slave syndrome. And when all that trauma started, all we had was the church, you know, but now we have more. And so let's use those resources that we have in our community. Absolutely. Matilda, do you have anything to add to that? I would say from a, an adolescent and child perspective, definitely no, um, because oftentimes, whereas we see children as being resilient, like they can bounce back from all of these things, what we find is that as they become adolescents, as they grow up into young adults and adults, it's shaping how they respond to their world. And so if they never enter into a therapeutic environment that helps them to see, did you, do you realize that you're, you're thinking this way or you behave this way every time this happens, they'll never be able to, to learn how to correct it because at first there's got to be an acknowledgement. But as we've been talking about, if you've normalized all of these things, how can you acknowledge something that you already perceive as okay? Danita. Um, I was thinking um, healing is an ongoing process, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you work with a population of people where, where is always um, your own trauma is always in your face. Mm-hmm. And so you have to stay before the Lord and you yourself, as you're working to help others, you have to make sure that you are staying healthy emotionally and physically um, by, you know, having someone to walk through life with you as well uh, through uh, clin- as a clinician. You know, someone who God has gifted and given the resources. They've gone to school. They've learned all of these things and how to help you navigate. But when you're when your trauma is always in your face, healing has to be an ongoing process. No, I agree with what everyone has said. Um, um, Counseling, when it, you know, when you're taking a Christian perspective on it, it's rooted in Romans. um, When the book talks about be transformed by the by the mind first. Mm -hmm. And so obviously there is a guy created a purpose for counselors Mm -hmm. uh, to address those needs. (laughs) Uh, So. 
you know, with that, uh, we just literally have to do away with some of the uh, the teachings of Big Mama and, you know, uh, what goes on in this house stays in this house. Uh, well, if the house is dysfunctional and unhealthy, uh, the whole house needs to go to counseling. Uh, so, can you say that again? Say, say that again in the mic for the people in the back. And, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, the whole house. Yes, ma'am, the whole house. <laughs> Not just, I'm going to send you and everything's going to be okay. The whole house. <laughs> yes, because, I mean, you know, people like to think that you're the only one that needs help. Like, I, I'm, there's a reason why I'm acting out. Hello. <laughs> do you see where I grew up? <laughs> you know? So, no, ladies, I appreciate it. So, right now, I'm going to ask y'all, get, um, get your thinking caps on. This is my last question. And then maybe we can, if if we can open up to, if anybody has anything from the floor. Um, you said two minutes? Two questions. Two, we do have two questions. Okay. Um, what are some resources for more understanding and help? So I know y'all have studied a plethora of things and read some things. And Whitney, you just threw one out and I just bought that book and I'm about to dive into it. Do it together. Yes. Um, so some resources. So it could be podcasts. It could be um IG lives it could be books it could be any type of resources for understanding and help well uh psychology today uh, .com is a great resource uh usually uh typically all of the articles uh, are written by a, a trained professional or research back. Um, but also there's a couple books, uh, The Body Keeps Score. Uh, and then there's another book, uh, Get Past the Past. Uh, but the only way to get through it or to get by, get through the past is to go through it. And so it just kind of lays out the framework uh, for you to take when you're navigating yourself through trauma. Yeah, yeah, I would say, um, you know, for kind of a focus on adolescents and children, um, The Boy That Was Raised by Raised as a Dog is a really good book as it's written by a psychologist, child psychologist that works with different kids that experience various traumas and the, the things that he utilized, the therapeutic methodologies that he'd used to kind of help them work through it. Um, Mind Matters is a good book. It's basically about um, how specifically mental health illness is manifested in the African-American community. Um, and so that book has been pretty profound. Um, and then, like Teresa said, The Body Keeps the Score is very good as well. So I would definitely highly recommend all of those books. Danita, do you have anything? I was thinking... Um more so uh, some of the things that I've been able to help with our uh, goal and vision setting mm -hmm. um, with the population of teens that I get the privilege to work with um, uh, doing like SWOT analysis, uh, uh, kind of researching. Uh, my husband and I this morning was just talking about like even me still going back, trying to trace my family doing uh, um not so much uh, um, the, the genealogy of why my grandparents and this, you know, just all the things that make up who I am. And so uh, something a little more practical with like setting goals and what would stop you from accomplishing this, you know, your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunity, what is the threat for you that's, you know, that'll keep you from overcoming some of the things that you live with. So mine's a lot of things I've done or have that has been beneficial to me has been, and it's because I know what type of learner I am. I'm, I'm a visual learner. So in, in kinesthetics, so I have to be doing so I can get it. So even recognizing what type of learner you are uh, is huge as well. Yeah, I would definitely say the body keeps the score is an excellent, excellent resource. Um, one of the books that I've been using with um, some of my adolescent families is How to Nurse Your Child Through an Eating Disorder. Um, and it really gives ownership to the parents of of kind of the whole division of responsibility and walking them through how to observe any uh, behaviors with feeding and body image. Um, I think honestly, the best thing is having open conversations with your kids of how, how do you view your body? How, um, how, you know, are you loving yourself? What are, how do you feel about yourself? Things like that, having those conversations. Cause I think that can kind of lead you to different resources um, that's applicable for your family. All right, so now we're going to go to the um, the crowd. 
Okay. If there are two questions, we can, and you can just repeat them on the mic. All right. So does anyone have any questions? If you have any questions for the panel, I'd love to hear them, and I'll repeat it. Yes. What are some things? What are some ways we can help people that you know they need counseling, but they don't want? They don't want it. They don't want to accept it. You can see they need it, but they don't want it. But you need to be able to steer them in the right direction. I'll go first. <laughs> um, I. I think one giving space to that fear and validating it again, there's so much trauma in the black community from mental and medical health. Um, I actually recently worked with a woman who went to therapy for the first time. She was seeing a, a white clinician and they immediately called Lakeside and it was just it was such a traumatic experience. So I would ask, you know, what's the fear? Maybe they already had a bad experience. Mm -hmm. And then if you know someone that is trusted, um, you could point them to them and say, Hey, like, I actually really know this person. They're professional, you know, and, and give them, I think, you know, I, I don't want to speak for anybody on the panel, but sometimes I think it's helpful before people make a commitment to interview the person. I have people call all the time and say, you know, what's your fee? What is it like? Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? And so giving them, t telling them, because a lot of people don't even know that's an option, mm -hmm. but I think definitely validating the fear, asking what's behind it pointing them to people that you know that are, are safe spaces um, are all really good first steps. Teresa? I agree with Whitney. Um, I, I think it is healthy for um, any and everyone who's thinking about thinking about counseling uh, to uh, be able to ask, you know, what's your approach? Uh, how long have you been doing this? You know, um, and, and as counselors, we're not to impose our values or views is to help us is to help you uh, guide and not navigate your own. Uh, and so just making sure that counselor is able to do that. Uh, and, it, you know, I get tons of clients who uh, want hands on practical resources and that's what they get. And some clients want just a listening ear and that's what they get. And so being able uh, to even co-switching counseling uh, according to what the need of the client is is very important. Matula, you have anything to add? I would just say um, just working to normalize it, right? So sometimes like it's it's difficult to have that conversation, but being able to say, you know, this is something that I would do for myself and here's are the ways that I think it would be beneficial to me as it could be for you. So just helping them to see that like, it's, it's not this far reaching thing that we can't engage in, just making it more an everyday thing. And, and even having people around them that are seeing therapists as well and how it's benefiting them. So giving them that ear, this is a positive experience and this is how it's helped me. Yeah, I was saying this. Uh, I know the, the first time that I went, I was a little leery and I, did, I went to a person um, that was not a person of color, but um, she was asking me to be an advocate for our community. She was like, your community needs a lot more help. And she wasn't trying to be funny. And she wasn't trying to down me at all. She was like, I commend you for coming in. And she was like, you don't even have to call it a therapist, counselor, whatever. You can call me an analyst. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. You know, that just kind of made me, yeah. <laughs> made my, you know, took my guard down a whole lot to be able to, an analyst, that's what you're doing. You're analyzing what I'm saying. And you're just giving me some tools. So. Um, that was that would be my little tidbit. Yes. Uh, I would feel like uh, every question that, that you ask, they have to be go to counseling. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask this question. Uh, you know, my, uh, my wife and I, this is my wife. <laughs> Love those shoes. Love those shoes. So here's my question. Uh, you know, we went to counseling, and I don't know how many sessions we did, but it was slow progress. I, we felt like it was a bad experience to the extent that we didn't cover much mileage, get much mileage out of a lot of sessions. So like what are some signs early on for trauma that you have a good uh, counselor that you're dealing with? So what signs So the the question is what are some signs early on that you have a good counselor? 
So as far as trauma is concerned, right, Mike? Yes. Okay. Is that on the counselor's end that you have a good counselor? Right, you know, when you're looking for a counselor or when you start those sessions, because I almost feel like, you know, you can maybe get some recommendations, but if you get somebody and you go and make your insurance gets eliminated out, gotcha. how do you know when you made a bad choice? Oh, okay. How do you know when you made a bad choice? And or how did, what are some signs that you have a good counselor? So <laughs> clearly, all y'all good counselors. So, so counseling is almost in the eye of the beholder. You know, it's, it's one of those very gray areas. Uh, but for me, um, as a practitioner, I like for my clients to walk away with something. I like for them to have some sort of connection, some sort of aha moment, some sort of um, goal for the next week, or you know, in between sessions. Um, and empathy, you know, and, and so sometimes, you know, when you're, um, uh, in your first couple of sessions, um, the, the counselor is still, um, collecting data and collecting information. And so maybe the first couple of sessions, uh, they can really only empathize, you know, and, and establish a really healthy rapport with you. Uh, and then as you go from there, then they begin to give you, um, some information. So it, it's a it's a bi-directional relationship. And so I have clients who come in from the jump and they tell me, you know, I had a, a counselor who just, you know, did this for the, you know, 50 minutes of the session. And I said, well, that's not me. I'm, I'm very, you know, hands-on. And it's like, I'm looking for someone like that. But so, you know, as a client, you can tell the counselor, you know, what you're looking for, what you're needing, what you've already tried. I have clients who are very educated, uh, and understand very much what they're going through. They're just simply needing a plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you can share that with that therapist and our feelings won't be hurt. You know, if, if you are that direct, it's like, great, you know, here it is, you know, let's start working from here. Great. So last thing, um, I'm going to need everyone, if you have a website or um, a way that um, somebody, if they want to reach out to you, to get in contact with you, to take advantage of your services, would you please um, let us know what that is? I'm gonna start with you, Natila. So a website or an email or something like that. So the website for me would be heartlifesoulcare.org. Um, and so on there, I think you can find my email address, which would be in the gi at heartlifesoulcare.org. <laughs> okay, and mine is gotangermanagement.com and that's gotangermanagement.com. Mine's is um, danita.younglife at gmail.com uh, for Young Life. Um, I, you can find me on the Psychology Today, Whitney Trotter. And then also um, I do, I guess, monthly, twice a month free Instagram lives, Instagram lives with uh, clinicians of color. So it's uh, bluff underscore city health. All right. Thank you, ladies. Um,